Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you today? Doing great. How about you? Good, good. Back on the hedge, or back at the hedge, on the hedge, at the hedge, however you want it. It's, it's a double meaning, <laughs> you know. And and the hedge has all these meanings, you know, like hedgehogs curling up in little balls and hissing and uh, like network engineers do whenever you fuss at them. I got my daughter a hedgehog keycap. It is the cutest little thing. She puts it up on her escape key and she thinks it's so cute. It's so cool. She has a hedgehog on her keyboard. But <laughs> nice, nice. The, he, the hedge I think of is the one that you BS over with your neighbors. <laughs> right. Well, that's the same. You know, that's the point. We have multiple meetings here. So today yeah. we're joined by Dan Bloom, who is here to talk about security. Um, and by the way, that, I didn't say this before we started recording, but I have a big interest in security, even though I'm a network engineer. And you said something about privacy and culture and stuff. I just finished my dissertation and my dissertation is in technology and culture. And so... Yeah, you'll see that we tend to end up on those topics a lot of times just because eh, it is what I'm working on a lot of times. So, Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, where are you, where are you coming from and what are you working on? Well, uh, well thanks for having me, uh, Russ and Tom. Um, I'm Dan Bloom, and I'm uh, a cybersecurity strategist and author uh, living in Silver Spring, Maryland. I have a background. Um, originally, uh, was a computer programmer, but I uh, went into uh, being an independent consultant, ended up with a great team over at a company called Burton Group. Uh, we specialized in identity and access management. We were acquired by Gartner. Had a, a pretty fun ride with them for three years and then uh, went back full circle to being an independent consultant again with my current company, Security Architects Partners, where we do consulting in uh, security architecture, identity management, and risk management projects. Um, and my big news uh, lately is I decided to write the book, Rational Cybersecurity for Business. Security Leaders Guide to Business Alignment. Okay. And that was just published last month. Oh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? Like what's in there? What do you, what do you mean by rational cybersecurity? I mean, everybody thinks they're rational. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's funny how that came out. I was um, wanting to write a book two years ago and talking with one of my colleagues. And um, I was trying to figure out how I could make it maybe a little less technical and a little more mainstream. And he said, well, just, um, you know, think of a title or a concept that's uh, two opposites. Uh, examine the art of motorcycle maintenance. Well, I found there was already a book called Zen and um, the Art of Information Security by Ira Winkler. So I went and read that. But then I thought, hey, rational cybersecurity. There's an oxymoron if you ever heard one. And <laughs> rational cybersecurity for business, double oxymoron, right? And why do I say that? I say that because, um, and this is why I wanted to write the book about uh, what it's about, the Security Leader's Guide to Business Alignment, because um, I have mostly been a technical uh, geek, if you want to call it that. And um, over the years, I've been brought in to solve technical problems, architectural problems, and you'd call me fairly technical. 
Uh, but I found on most of my projects uh, that there was an organizational issue or a stakeholder alignment issue underlying uh, why things weren't working well, why the client needed help. So uh, I decided to write a book exploring that, and the topic uh, really grew on me uh, as I wrote the book. And in the end, I just decided to open source the book so it's available for a complimentary download, the, the electronic version. And they did a really nice job over at the publisher, A-Press. Uh, in fact, uh, I think they published a lot of uh, books on work uh, engineering, too. Although I couldn't offhand, uh, you know, give you all the titles or anything. But uh, uh, open access is a big thing with that publisher. Okay, cool, cool. So let's talk through a little bit about what's in there. When you talk about rational cybersecurity, what do you mean? Like, what types of things are you talking about so if somebody wants to pick this up sure, and read it. Sure. So, uh, well, I actually have a definition for rational cybersecurity in the book and a definition for cybersecurity to business alignment. Um, I couldn't quote them to you, and they'd probably sound pretty boring if I did. But basically, the idea is that uh, cybersecurity is um, – the very concept of it is sort of uh, – uh, a little of a false promise, I guess, the, the uh, definition in the dictionary of security being free from risk or danger. Um, it seems like we quite, never quite get there. Um, and people have all sorts of uh, misguided notions about cybersecurity. I detail about uh, six or seven myths uh, about it. The first one being that it's just a technical problem. And uh, so to, to make a long story short, the the definition of uh, rational cybersecurity is having to do uh, with uh, security needing to be uh, really defined in terms of the company where it's operating or the organization where it's operating. It needs to be aligned with the mission, the um, organizational structure and the, the policies and uh, the way that company works. Uh, so if it's, if it's doing all that, then we have rational cybersecurity and if uh, the um, stakeholders are aligned uh, with the security program, it will be much more successful uh, because, um, you know, if you think of um, the organization, the security organization, it's like the um, uh, bottom of an upside down pyramid, you know, less than 1% of the company and uh, security being as much a human problem and organizational problem as anything. Uh, there's a whole bunch of users and, business managers up there, you work with them, things can work reasonably well, you don't work with them, they can't. So I was kind of exploring that general concept and I um, have 10 chapters in the book that cover how it's applied to uh, the six major priorities I talk about. You wanted to know what was in the book, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, so yeah, 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 that's there's fine. The six major priorities that, that I focused on uh, were uh, security, culture, and governance, improving that. Managing risk in the language of business, uh, simplifying and rationalizing IT and security, controlling access with minimal drag on the business, instituting cyber resilience, uh, detection, response, and recovery, and establishing a control baseline is the sixth one. So I basically uh, took the Pareto principle, the 80-20 the rule. And I figured if, uh, if we could figure out how to solve the cybersecurity to business alignment for issues for the most important 20% of our cybersecurity issues, we could uh, probably get 80% of the benefit that we could hope to get. Okay. 
So, so let's dive into one specific area a little bit and talk about like how you would apply this type of concept of rational cybersecurity to something. Let's talk about zero trust because I know that's a huge deal right now that everyone is really worried about zero trust. And so like if you were to take rational cybersecurity, your concept here of those, those types of things and think about zero trust in that context, what would you do? Where would you start? Well, I'll have to feel my way a little bit because, um, Zero trust is um, a um, principle, kind of guiding principle, an architectural principle. It's um, a bit of an abstraction, right? Uh, so I want to start with what's the business problem? You know, why are why are people interested in it? What are they trying to accomplish? Uh, and, and 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 so I think uh, right now, with um, certainly with uh, the uh, work from home um, imperative of COVID nineteen. Uh, zero trust may be about remote access. It may be about changing suppliers. It may be about everything's moving to the cloud and how do I verify those um, third-party um, security programs that these cloud service providers have. Uh, that's sort of the, um, if you will, the, the trust problem but the, or, or the business problem uh, that people are trying to solve. And um, zero trust fits into a lot of... Um, areas of that, those business problems um, because it is uh, the uh, principle, uh, no access without authentication, don't trust a entity, you know, whether it's a, a user or a service or a device, just based on where it's coming from, uh, but trust it based on um, authentication. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of authentication methods, uh, but, um, Behind uh, my, um, one of my colleagues used to say uh, that authentication uh, was a much uh, smaller problem than authorization, you know, kind of what you're allowed to do once you have been, you know, at least minimally authenticated. And, and that gets into a lot of uh, arch other architectural issues around zero trust. So let, let's see, where, where do we want to go with this? Because there's just many... Yeah, well, let's just talk about zero trust. Zero trust itself. is kind of this amorphous. Uh, yeah, so let's talk about zero trust itself. Like, what what is it people are trying to do with zero trust? You know, if, if you if you hear zero trust, what is it I should be thinking? What's what should come to my head? I think they're uh, they're they're trying to improve um, identity and access management so that they can um, authenticate every user, device, or service, not having to trust it based on where it's coming from, you know, is it in the building or not in the building? And nobody's in the building anymore for many of our companies, right? So uh, they're, they're, uh, what they're trying to do is improve, uh, is to have that ability to authenticate users. But as I was um, trying to say a little earlier, authentication is less than half of the problem. It's um, Authentication is like what you do uh, when you go through uh, security, you know, at the airport. Now you need authorization. What flight can you go on? And, uh, you know, are you part of the crew that can go into the, uh, uh, the, the plane before the passengers get on the plane? Uh, do you have um, a membership at the Red Carpet Club at United and all that other type of thing? That's... Uh, more than half of what we're trying to do with identity and access management. We're trying to do it while we're all working remote. So I think that's what, what, what identity and access management, uh, what underlies zero trust means. And uh, you know, I think from the networking perspective, um, it's also really interesting to engineers because we have 
for many years had this notion of the disappearing perimeter, right? Uh, where where uh, the firewall problem uh, gradually morphed from keeping the bad guys out to letting the good guys in also. And um, again, another flavor of that authorization um, challenge that I mentioned. So um, we have uh, the uh, zero trust uh, principle and we have it operating at the network level as well. And uh, a lot of other architectural components like micro segmentation uh, kind of get involved in the zero trust discussion as well. So going, going back to the authentication versus authorization um, idea, if you if, if some company hired you and said, all right, we we want to do zero trust and we we think we're all the way there. Um, there is zero authorization built into our architecture, um, but we think we just have a little bit of work left to do. We just want you to help finish that little bit of work. What would you say to that customer and what uh, how would you would you adjust their mindset or would, would there, is there a scenario in which um, authentication without authorization is is real zero trust? If they believe that just because they'd solve the authentication problem, uh, that they uh, basically done everything they needed to do to have the identity and access management system they needed, that's kind of what you're asking, right? Right. Uh, I, I would. I would. I would uh, just. Um, you don't. You don't want to argue with the the customer in that sort of way. You know, telling them their baby's ugly. You. You want to find out, you know, what are their business problems and uh, what are their goals and requirements, and then kind of hold up what they have against those and see whether uh, they are accomplishing them. So I would just uh, go into the discovery mode at that point and ask them questions about their business drivers, uh, their business challenges. I uh, talk to uh, people and uh, collect information and uh, identify a set of um, strengths and a set of gaps and then validate those with the stakeholders, try and get agreement that, you know, these are the good things about what we have. These are the uh, areas where we need to improve. Uh, and, and, and maybe at the end of that, uh, they decide that, oh, our zero trust architecture isn't doing everything that it could be doing or everything that it should be doing. Or uh, maybe they decide uh, we, we like the way we defined it. We don't want to have a lot of scope creep with uh, what we called our zero trust project, but we recognize there's other problems. There's always other problems to solve. So, so that's interesting. So like when you look at a project like this, what makes you think zero trust? Like what is it that says to you, oh, this is truly zero trust beyond just the authentication? I mean, there must be some, some definition you have. Oh, sure. So uh, just, just take the um, remote access problem for businesses, uh, that have had to send staff home, work from home. Uh, there were uh, a lot of uh, organizations kind of caught a bit flat-footed uh, by the original lockdown in March, and they really had to scramble to uh, keep um, their um, business processes running, the, um, you know, even to be able to have meetings among their staff and uh, to be able to uh, support their applications and serve their applications because they had to make changes to the network. Uh, a lot of companies have had call centers no longer can uh, provide support uh, at the volume and the quality that they did before because they had to send all those uh, call center workers or a lot of the call center workers home. 
and uh, they don't feel that uh, they can supervise them or um, provide the security for them uh, from home. Uh, and so that's why, like, for example, the last time my Google Nest uh, router went on the fritz, I found out um, even Google uh, now does not provide uh, support uh, for, you know, there's, you can't call someone up on the phone to help you figure out what's wrong with your Google Nest router. But I remember before um, the lockdowns and everything that they had great support. And yet Google, and I mentioned them on purpose because Google is the poster child for zero trust. Uh, they had a corporate initiative called Beyond Core, uh, where they basically tried to realize this dream that all services and users would be authenticated and authorized uh, by the uh, what they call the control plane, the access control plane in the zero trust model. You know, in the um, in the actual book here. By, uh, the, I guess the idea is that um, it's authorization as well as authentication and that you're trying to solve this remote access business problem. And there were a lot of companies that weren't ready. The, the one that was very interesting, uh, I found um, a few that were ready because they'd already been doing uh, good um, contingency planning for uh, scenarios. Um, and, and one example that I wrote about in an article was an asset management company that had um, been doing an active shooter uh, risk scenario readiness evaluation. And they were wondering, you know, if everybody had to go home because of an active shooter in the building, could we still run our business, you know, for a day or a few days or whatever? And they figured out uh, that they needed to do a lot of things to equip users to work from home better. Uh, sometimes uh, it could be something as simple as users didn't have a headset, or it could be something as complicated as the VPN can't give us access to the key uh, applications that um, our analysts need for trading or whatever. Uh, but they worked through these issues and they solved a lot of them. They found zero trust to be kind of a, a convenient uh, moniker for that project. Uh, and you know, they resolved a lot of what they called the zero trust issues. Uh, they weren't preparing for a pandemic specifically, but um, when that time came, uh, they were readier than most. Okay. Interesting. So zero trust, you would say, is about authentication and uh, and about uh, authorization. So it's the two A's. And, and networking. And, and, and things like that, right? So yeah. From a networking perspective, I mean, the biggest thing is, like you said, you talked about how it used to be that you had an edge and now you don't have an edge anymore. There was a time when I would say that uh, it used to be that you had crunchy on the outside, you make your cookies crunchy on the outside and chewy on the center. And nowadays you've got to make your cookies chewy or crunchy all the way through. Yeah, mm -hmm. there, There's like a total, everything is untrusted. So that's basically what, from a network engineering perspective is, that uh, everything is untrusted. It's interesting because I read this book very recently about uh, by a pen tester, and I don't spend a lot of time reading books by pen testers, but you know, hey, this looked really interesting, so I picked it up and read it. And essentially, the amount of the ability that this pen tester had to move from host to host once they owned a single host in the network was absolutely fascinating. Um, just the ability to say, 
well, I've, I've used a spear phishing or something like that, and I've taken over one host. And it turns out that, you know, the pot of gold host that I'm after is like a network management host or a DNS server or something like that because it's going to have access to everything in the network. So I'll work my way through the network until I find that host that I really want to get to, that pot of gold host. And I'm going to try to take it over using domain controllers and things like that and just figure out using you know, various ways of getting in there. I'm going to dump local password files and look for administrator passwords and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, it just felt like I was reading this whole book and there was so little network engineer could do about fixing all the problems this guy is going through as a pen tester. He's what he's doing to pen test the network. And well, so most of those problems aren't at uh, the network engineer's layer. Right. And that's what was, imp- that's what really kind of impressed me or, or got me to thinking about like, this is where things like micro segmentation actually can make a difference. That's, that's one thing it seems like a network engineer could yes. do. Yes. Uh, Our um, engineer maybe, uh, but data center network is part of the network engineer's remit maybe. Yeah. Right. Well, right. Yeah. When I think of a network engineer, I think of somebody who maintains the, who maintains yeah. the, uh, the 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 corporate network and uh, or maintains the prod network over on the data center side? Yeah. So that's that's one of those things where I think it was pretty interesting. Um, are there any other other than thinking about just that? I have this as a network engineer. I have these people trying to cross things. Are there other things that I can do as a network engineer that would help aid in zero trust that you can think of? Um, maybe I don't know. Just, just out of curiosity, if there's anything you can think well, of. That what I, what I, one thing I can think of is uh, that you know I did say that uh, a lot of these uh, issues uh, that the pen tester was finding, like the passwords and the, uh, and I'm sure he was finding uh, service accounts that were um, open or uh, service accounts that were visible on the network and. Uh, the role of the service account or its purpose was right there in the name for the cyber attacker to be able to see uh, and know what the target would be. Those are um, things that are all happening at the host security layer or the identity layer, but the network engineer can at least see all that. Uh, so as a, a network engineer, um, one, one thing you could do is um, if you're also a network security engineer, is uh, in addition to the micro segmentation and uh, the uh, sort of what we call the security zoning architecture, the, the firewalls and VLANs and all that, you can also get involved with the network security monitoring. And um, there's uh, tools, uh, you know, network packet capture tools and things like that that can analyze uh, the network traffic analysis in the enterprise. So you can identify where those uh, pots of gold are. Everybody's trying to access uh, this. Uh, and, and here are the service accounts that they're coming through. And um, you can also look at uh, some of that layer seven information, like the names of those service accounts that are visible over the network and kind of write analysis tools in the um, security information and event management system uh, to detect um, all these weaknesses that are apparent over the network 
and, and use the network as the lens through which you uh, identify all the gaps that need to be fixed at the host security, uh, vulnerability and configuration management or identity and access management layers. So another thing that fascinates me is just the, the router switch network device as a host and securing that device as well. Like what does Zero Trust play a role in that process, like AAA for that? Um, I can't think of a, a big connection there, Rush, uh, you know, not, not off the top of my head. I mean, I think that's kind of a bit uh, sort of uh, extending the uh, remit of Zero Trust, you know, into uh, everything. <laughs> if, we, if we do that, then, you know, the more... Uh, the more it encompasses, the less it means in, in some sense. And I think that's one of the challenges we've had uh, with the use of this terminology uh, is that no one knows what it means anymore. But uh, I, I think sticking to the idea of it is um, it's about authentication and authorization and that that has to be ubiquitous and that it also has to be commensurate to the risk. You know, so you, you, you don't necessarily need the... Um, ubiquitous multi-factor authentication, if that's going to be a burden to the users. Uh, it's certainly nice to have if you have um, multi-factor authentication and then you single sign on that to a lot of places so it increases the convenience to the user. But um, you need to um, have uh, authentication that's appropriate to the risk. If, um, if this is a privileged user that's um, maintaining some of those pots of gold, you most definitely need the multi-factor authentication and not just when the user initially authenticates, but continuously, you know, if something goes wrong uh, with that user. Suddenly um, it's the same credentials, but they're on a different device or, you know, devices um, engaging in some impossible travel, you know, suddenly appearing in Australia when it was in California just an hour ago, you know, pick up on that stuff. That's kind of in the remit of zero trust. So, um, I wonder, Dan, every place I've ever been, and I, I maybe I'm overgeneralizing this, but I, I've never worked in a really effective place that that does security well, where networking with networking engineers were not involved. Um, usually, there was a security team monitoring, doing operations, but always there had to be a strong a strong connection between the networking infrastructure people and the people who are who are analyzing security. Uh, a lot of controls are just sort of, okay, networking people, you have to build this into the infrastructure. It has to be part of it, whether that's middle boxes or firewalls or or whatever. You know, networking engineers are always involved. So I guess my question is, but and and your what you were saying earlier, um, which was basically the way I read it, um, help out the blue team, right? Like you can see things from the network perspective that are really easy for you to see that might not be so easy for them to see. So help them out. But everybody's overloaded. What's the incentive for a network person to go help the blue team or help the security operations team? Um, and, and you mentioned organizational issues um, earlier on. Have you seen anything incentives-wise to, to help make that uh, bond between networking and security teams stronger? Yeah, I think um, uh, if, we, if we look at um, uh, a couple things, uh, the, uh, the sort of DevSecOps movement it's really about uh, how you can automate a lot of these security steps into the um, application development and the system support and infrastructure support. And uh, it's also about how you can 
put the uh, some of the security steps and the uh, the monitoring of the automated security tools or, uh, you know, when they're turned on or how they're set up more in the hands of the actual users that whose information or systems it's trying to protect. That's kind of what DevSecOps is all about. So it's, it's really down to the uh, security department to make it easy for the network engineers to be able to support them, to give them the tools through which the network engineers can support them. And then it's sort of up to the business management at the layer above the um, security organization and the network organization that just cares about, is our business safe? You know, are we going to be able to uh, bring product to market and support our customers without these uh, nasty breaches? Uh, and, and we don't care whether the problem's in the network area or the application area or the system area. We just want it uh, all secure to give uh, people the incentive to work together in that in that way. But uh, it's, so so everybody sort of has a, a, a role to play, but very good point. Um, most people uh, have um, limited uh, time and attention to spare. So you need to affect, you know, making security frictionless for them. Interesting. Okay, cool. So I don't have any other real questions about Zero Trust or anything else, Tom, anything? No, no, it's been uh, it's been good good chat, yeah, Dan. Good, Thank you. Good chat. Yep. Thanks. And Dan, so tell us a little bit more about Rational Cybersecurity, where people can get it. You can get it on uh, Amazon. Uh, you can get it from my publisher, apress.com, uh, A-P-P-A-P-R-E-S-S.com. You can also Google uh, Dan Bloom Rational Cybersecurity, and um, you'll be able to get. Um, either to the APS, uh, the, the APRESS um, site, where you can download um, a high-fidelity uh, PDF, um, or you can uh, get it from Amazon. You can get it on the Kindle. If you like to read on the Kindle, you can order a, a paperback uh, okay. as well. Yeah. Now, so do you have a blog or a podcast or anything else that you do that you keep up with security stuff for people who are interested in more in the security side of the world? Yes, um, my uh, blog is at uh, security-architect.com. Okay, cool. Awesome. And I assume you're on LinkedIn, Twitter. Do you have a Twitter handle or anything like that, social media? Yeah, uh, the, the Twitter handle is um, uh, Rational Cybersecurity, but I couldn't quite get all the characters in, so I think I had to drop the uh, a couple of them, like the E in security. Okay. I think, I think, yeah. you, should make it, I think you should make it RATSEC. Uh, <laughs> <Rat sec. laughs> yeah. I think you should go check and see if rat sex available. That would be funny. <laughs> Thought about that. So, Tom, no blog yet. I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to give you a hard <laughs> You're time. State it. Nice. <laughs> and Twitter, what's your trail handle? It's just uh, Tom Ammon, rational, right? Rational Cyber Sec. Okay. Rational Cyber Sec. There you go. There you and, go. That's a good one. Uh, I, had to, I had to drop the E, rational cybersec, but I had to drop the E in cyber, I think, to make the character limit. Okay. Nice, nice. You can, uh, um, Tom's Twitter is uh, Tom Ammon, and then I'm also on LinkedIn. And also on LinkedIn, cool. And, and I'm on LinkedIn, I'm just uh, Dan Bloom, so. Okay, cool. Um, and I'm Russ White, you can always reach me on LinkedIn, rule11.tech, don't PM me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, but don't PM me on Twitter. It's useless. 
I don't know. People still do it. And I just, I just don't, I don't really answer. Yeah. It's just like one yeah, of those things. So anyway, thanks Dan for coming on and uh, we'll catch you next time on the next episode of The Hedge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.